Bells of San Juan by Jackson Gregory Chapter 13 Concealment The eyes of San Juan were upon Caleb Patton throughout the night and during the long hours of the following day. Under them his inflated ego grew further distended while waxing more technical than ever. He explained how a man in Rod Norton's condition could live and yet lie like a man dead. So prolific and involved were his medical phrases that men like John Eagle and Strove began to ask themselves if Patton understood his case. When after twelve hours the wounded man awoke to a troubled consciousness, Patton's relief was scarcely less visible than that of Norton's friends. Patton felt his prestige taking unto itself new wings and immediately grew more wisely verbose than ever. It was a rare privilege to have the most talked of and generally liked man of the community under his hands. It was wine to Patton's soul to have that man show signs of recovering under his skill. So he drove well-wishers from the room, drew the shades, commanded quiet, and came and went eternally, doing nothing whatever and appearing to be fighting, sleeves rolled up for a threatened life. Long before noon there were those who had laughed at Patton before, but who now accused themselves of having failed to do him justice. Virginia Page had remained all night with her patient in Las Estrellas. The first rumor she had of the fight in the Casablanca was borne to her ears by Ignacio's bell. As she rode back toward San Juan only a few hours ago, she had talked with Galloway, watching him banter with Flory Engel. But a little before that, earlier in the same day, she had seen Rod Norton. Before she galloped up to the old mission garden, her heart was beating excitedly and she was asking herself a little fearfully, Is it Galloway, or is it Rod Norton? For she was so sure that in the end Ignacio would ring the captain for one of them. Ignacio told her the story. Norton was lying in the hotel unconscious, Patton working over him, Jim Galloway and Antone were in the little jail, and soon would be taken to the county seat. Kid Rickard was shot through the lung, but would live, Patton said. Fidel Nunez, over whom the whole thing had started, was dead. "'If me amigo Ricardo die,' mumbled Ignacio, "'it will be two Nortones, two sheriffs that die because of Galloway. If Ricardo live, then the next time he will kill Galloway. You will see, senorita.' She made no answer as she rode slowly down the street. She was thinking how only a few weeks ago she had heard the bells ring for the first time. How, then, Galloway and Norton had been but meaningless names to her. How she had been little moved by either the sound of pistol shots or the captain's heavy tolling. Now things were different. Just in what were they different? And to what degree? She could not answer her own question before she was at the hotel. Strove came immediately, noted her pale face, attributed it to a sleepless night, and made her take a cup of coffee. He rounded out the information she already had from Ignacio. Norton was still unconscious, though only a few minutes ago Patton had reported signs of improvement. Mrs. Engle had been with him, was still there acting nurse. He was being given every attention possible. Patton himself entered, drawn by the aroma of coffee. He nodded carelessly to the girl and remarked to Straub, with a flash of triumph in his eyes, that at last he had brought him around. Norton was very weak, sick, dizzy, perhaps not yet out of danger, 
but Patton had won in an initial skirmish with old man death. At least so Strav was given to feel. Virginia, with a quick look at Patton's complacent face, was moved with sudden, almost insistent longing that Rod Norton's life might be given into her own hands rather than remain in the pudgy hands of a man she at once disliked as an individual and failed to admire as a physician. For she had needed no long residence in San Juan to form her own estimate of the man's ability, or lack of ability. But plainly this was Patton's case, not hers. She got up from the table and went to her own room. Elmer she found lying fully dressed upon a couch in her office, sleeping heavily. She stood over him a moment, her eyes tender. He was still, would always be, her baby brother. Then she went to her own room and threw herself down upon her bed, worn out, anxious, vaguely fearful for the future. It was a long day for San Juan. Mrs. Engle came now and then to Virginia's room to wipe her eyes and force a hopeful smile. Florrie ran in like a young tempest to weep copiously and hyperbolically invest poor dear Roddy with imaginable heroic attributes. Engel and Strav and Tom Cutter were grave-eyed and distressed. Every hour Ignacio came to the hotel to ask quietly for news. In his own way it appeared that Elmer Page was as deeply concerned as anyone. It was long before he told Virginia that he had been in the Casablanca when a shooting occurred. Haltingly, he gave her his version of it. Don't you think, Elmer, suggested the girl somewhat wearily, that you have gotten hold of the wrong end of things here? I mean, in choosing your friends, certainly after this you will have nothing to do with men like Galloway and Rickard. Ten minutes' talk with Elmer gave her a deeper understanding of his attitude than she had been able to guess until now. Spontaneously he had leaned toward Kid Rickard because the kid was a killer, and Elmer was a boy. In other words, because young Page's imagination made of Rickard a truly picturesque figure, since Rickard admired Jim Galloway as he had never known how to admire aught else that breathed and walked, Elmer's eyes had from the first rested approvingly upon the massive figure of Casablanca's ornament. That both Galloway and Rickard were fighting against persecution were merely individuals wronged by the law and too fearlessly independent to submit to the high hand of sheriff or judge, was easily implanted in the boy's mind. Yesterday his fancies were ready to make heroes of Galloway and his crowd, to make of Norton a meddler hiding behind the bulwark of his office, and hounding those who were too manly to step aside for him. But now Elmer was all at sea, no land in sight. "'Gun in each hand, sis,' he cried warmly, his cheeks flushed, as the almost constantly recurring picture formed again in his memory. And if you could have only seen his eyes, talk about hiding behind everything, no, sir, and him only one against Galloway and the kid and Nunez and a whole roomful. Here was Elmer's trouble drawn to the surface. He was touched with leaping admiration for the man who lay now in the darkened room. He couldn't admire both Norton, the sheriff, and Galloway and Rickard, the sheriff's swarming enemies. Which way should Elmer Page turn? Virginia very wisely held her tongue. Tom Cutter, having conferred with Engel and Staub, 
left San Juan in the early afternoon, conveying his prisoners to the greater security of the county jail. It seemed the wisest step, the one which Norton would have taken. Besides, Galloway insisted upon it, and upon being allowed to send a message to a lawyer. "'I am willing to stand trial,' said Galloway indifferently. "'I'll arrange for bail tomorrow, and be back tomorrow night.' The question which Tom Cutter, Strove, and Engel all ask of themselves and of each other, did Morega get his chance to talk with Galloway, went unanswered. There was nothing to do but wait upon the future, to know that, unless Morega, now on his way back to Sheriff Roberts, could be made to talk, and Morega was not given to garrulity. Meantime, Patton brought hourly reports of Norton. He was still in danger, to be sure, but he was doing as well as could be expected. No one must go into the room except Mrs. Engle as nurse. Norton was fully conscious, but forbidden to talk. He recognized those about him. His eyes were clear, his temperature satisfactory, his strength no longer waning. He had partaken of a bit of nourishment, and tomorrow, if there were no unlooked-for complications, would be able to speak with John Engle, for whom he had asked. During the days which followed, days in which Rod Norton lay quiet in a darkened room, Virginia Page was conscious of having awakened some form of interest in Caleb Patton. His eyes followed her when she came and went, and, when she surprised them, were withdrawn swiftly, but not before she had seen in them a speculative thoughtfulness. While she noted this, she gave it little thought, so occupied was her mind with other matters. So she postponed, as long as she could, a talk with Julius Strove, her spirit galled that she must, in the end, go to him like a beggar as she expressed it to herself. But one day, her head erect, she followed the hotel-keeper into his office. In the hallway, she encountered Patton. "'May I have a word with you?' Patton asked. But Virginia had steeled herself to the interview with Strong, and would no longer set it aside, even for a moment. "'If you care to wait on the veranda,' she told Patton, "'I'll be out in a minute. I want to see Mr. Strong now.' Patton stood aside and watched her pass the shrewdly questing look in his eyes. When she disappeared in the office, he remained where she had left him, listening. When she began to speak with Strauve, her voice rapid and hinting at nervousness, he came a quiet step nearer the door she had closed after her. "'I'm ashamed of myself, Mr. Strauve,' said Virginia, coming straight to the point. "'I owe you already for a month's board and room, rent for myself and Elmer. I—' "'That's perfectly all right, Miss Virginia,' said Strauve hurriedly. I know the sort of job you've got on your hands making collections. If you can wait, I am willing to do so. Glad to do so, in fact. Patton, fingering his little mustache, then letting the thick fingers drop to the diamond in his tie, smiled with satisfaction. Smiling, he tiptoed down the hall and went out upon the veranda, where he smoked his cigar serenely. When Virginia came out to him, her face was flaming. Had he not heard Stroff's word, he would have thought that his answer to her apology had been an angry demand for immediate payment. Patton failed to understand how the girl's fine, independent nature writhed in a situation all but intolerable. That she appreciated gratefully Strauve's quick kindness did not minimize her own mortification. Patton watched her seat herself, then he launched himself into his subject. Virginia listened at first with faint interest, then with quickened wonder. For the life of her, she could not tell if the little man were seeking to flatter or insult her. 
I've leased an old deserted ranch house just on the edge of town, he told her. Got it for a song, too. Some first-rate land goes with it. I'll probably buy the whole thing before long. There's plenty of good water. Now what am I up to, eh? Just the same thing all the time. If you want to know, and that means making money. Leaning forward, he knocked the ash from his cigar and brought himself confidently nearer. An open-air sanatorium, he announced triumphantly, for tuberculosis patients. There's lots of them. And he waved his arm in a wide half-circle, coming out of the east on the run, scared to death, and with more or less money in their pockets. It's a big proposition, a sure money-getter. He grew more animated than she had ever dreamed he could be, as he sketched his plans. While she was wondering why he had come to her with them, he gave his explanation, made her his double offer. Then it was that she was puzzled, to know whether he meant to compliment her or merely to insult her. In a word, he assured her from the heights of superiority to which he had ascended those last few days of importance. The practice of medicine was no woman's work at best, certainly not in a land like this, where a man's endurance, breadth, or mind, and keener innate ability to cope with big situations were indicated. No work for a slip of a girl like Virginia Page. Of that, Caleb Patton assured her unhesitatingly. But there was work for such as her in a place which he would create for her. Fairly bewildered at his audacity, she found herself listening to his suggestion that she marry Caleb Patton and become a sort of head nurse in an institution which he would found. In spite of her, she was moved to sudden impulsive laughter. She had not meant to laugh at the man who might be sincere, who, it was possible, was merely a fool, but laugh she did, so that her mirth reached Rod Norton, where he lay upon his bed, and made him stir restlessly. "'What do you mean by that?' demanded Patton, a flush in his cheeks. "'I mean,' stammered Virginia at last, "'that I thank you very much, Dr. Patton, but that I can avail myself of neither the opportunity of being your wife or your head nurse. As for my inability to do for myself what I have set out to accomplish, well, I am not afraid yet. There is work to be done here, and I don't quite agree with you that it's all man's work. There's always a little left over for a woman. You know, she added brightly. But Patton was obviously angered. He flung to his feet and glared down at her. Perhaps it had not entered his thought that she could make other than the answer he wanted. It had been very clear to him that he was offering to become responsible for one who was embarked upon a voyage already destined to failure, that he would support her, merely doing as many other men of his ilk did, and make her work for all that she got. "'It's silly nonsense, thinking you can make a living here,' he said irritably. I am already established. I'm a man. I can have all the cases I want. You get only a few breeds who haven't a dollar to a dozen of them. If you are already broke and can't even pay for your room and board. Who told you that? she asked quickly. I can hear, can I? he demanded coarsely. Didn't you go just now to beg Strom to hold you over? And she slipped out of her chair and stood a moment, staring coldly and contemptuously at him. Then she was gone, leaving Patton watching her departure incredulously. A man who hasn't any more sense than Caleb Patton, 
she cried within himself, has no business with a physician's license. It's a sheer wonder he didn't kill Roderick Norton. Already she had forgotten her words with Straub, or rather the matter for the present was shoved aside in her mind for another. She had come here to make good. She had her fight before her, and she was going to make good. She had to, for herself, for her own pride, for Elmer's sake. She went straight to Elmer and made him sit down and listen while she sketched actual conditions, briefly and emphatically. He was old enough to do something for himself in the world. Continued idleness did him no earthly good and might do him no end of harm morally, mentally, and physically. He had been her baby brother long enough. It was time that he became a man. She had supported him until now, asking nothing of him in return save that he kept out of mischief a certain percentage of the time. Now he was going to work and help out. He could go to John Engle and get something to do upon one of Engle's ranches. Somewhat to her surprise, Elmer responded eagerly. He had been thinking the matter over, and it appealed to him. What he did not tell her was that he had seen some of the bancaros riding in from the outlying ranges, lean, brown, quick-eyed men who bestrode high-headed mounts, and who wore spurs, white hats, shaggy shafts, and who, perhaps, carried revolvers hidden away in their hip pockets, men who drank freely, spent their money as freely at dice and cards, and who, all in all, were a picturesque crowd. Elmer took up his hat and went down to the bank and had a talk with John Engle. Virginia's eyes followed him hopefully. That day Norton was allowed for the first time to receive callers. He had his talk with Engle, limited to five minutes by Patton, who hung about curiously until Norton said pointedly that he wanted to speak privately with the banker. Later Florrie came with her mother, bringing an immense armful of roses culled by her own hands, excited, earnest, entering the shaded room like a frightened child, speaking only in hushed whispers. "'Won't you come in, too, for a moment, Virginia?' asked Mrs. Engle. "'Roddy will be glad to see you. He has asked about you. But Virginia made an excuse. It was Patton's case, and after what had occurred between herself and Patton, she had no intention of so much as seeming to overlap the professional lines. The following day, however, she did go to see him. Patton himself, stiff and boorish, asked her to. His patient had asked for her several times, knowing that she was in the building and marking how she made an exception and refused to look in on him while all of his other friends were doing so, some of them coming many times. Patton told her that Norton was not well by any means yet, and that he did not intend to have him worried up over an imagined slight. So Virginia did as she was bid. Mrs. Engle was in the room, bending over the bed with a dampened towel to lay upon Norton's forehead. He showed a sign of fever, and his head ached constantly. He looked about quickly as the girl came in, his hand stirring a little, offering itself. She took it by way of greeting and sat down in the chair drawn up at his side. "'It's good of you to come,' he said quickly, his eyes brightening. "'I was beginning to wonder if I had offended you in some way. You see, everybody has run in but you. A man gets spoiled when he's laid up like this, doesn't he? Especially when it's the first time he can remember.' when he was stuck in bed for upward of twenty-four hours running. Despite her familiarity with the swift ravages of illness, she received a positive shock as she looked at him. She had visualized him during these later days, as she had last seen him, brown, vitally robust, the embodiment of lean, clean strength, 
now sunless in action, had set its mark on his skin, which had already grown sallow. His eyes burned into her own. His hand fell weakly to the coverlet as she removed her own, his fingers plucking nervously. And yet she summoned a cheerful smile to answer his. I was satisfied in hearing that you were doing well, she said, and I know that the fewer people a sick man sees, the better for him. He moved his head restlessly back and forth on his pillows. Not for a man like me, he told her. I'm not used to this sort of business, just laying here with my eyes shut or staring at the ceiling, which is worse, drives a man mad. I told Patton today that if he didn't let me see folks, I'd get up and go out if I had to crawl. Virginia laughed, determined to be cheerful. I'm afraid that you make a rather troublesome patient, don't you? she asked lightly. Norton made no answer, but lay motionless save for the constant plucking of his coverlet, his eyes moodily fixed upon the wall. Mrs. Engle, finding the water pitcher empty and saying that she would be back in two seconds, went out to fill it. Promptly, Norton's eyes returned to Virginia's face, resting there steadily. I've been dizzy and sick and half out of my head a whole lot, he said abruptly, but I've been thinking of you most of the time, dreaming about you climbing cliffs with you. He broke off suddenly, but did not remove his eyes from hers. It was she who turned away, pretending to find it necessary to adjust the window curtain. It was impossible to sit quietly while he looked at her that way, his eyes, all without warning, filling with a look for any girl to read a look of glowing admiration, almost a look of pure love-making. Norton sighed, and again his head moved restlessly on his pillow. Had time to think here of late, he said after a little, more time to think than I've ever had before in my life, about everything, myself, Jim Galloway, and you. I've decided to send word to the district attorney to let Galloway go, he added, again watching her. I'm not going to appear against him, and there's no case if I don't. But, she began wondering, there are no buts about it. Suppose I can get him convicted, which I doubt. He'd get a light sentence would appeal, and most would be out of the way a couple of years or so. And then it would all be to do over again. No, I want him out in the open, where he can go as far as he wants to go. And then... She saw his body stiffen as he braced himself with his feet against the footboard. We won't talk shop, she said gently. It isn't good for you. Don't think about such things any more than you have to. Got to think about something, he said impatiently. Can I think about you? Why not? She answered as lightly as she had spoken before. Maybe that isn't good for me either, he answered. Nonsense. It's always good for us to think about our friends. His eyes wandered from hers, rested a moment upon the little table near his bedhead, and came back to her, narrowing a little. Will you set a chair against that window shade, he asked. The light at the side hurts my eyes. It was a natural request, and she turned naturally to do what he asked. But even with her back turned, she knew that he had reached out swiftly for something that lay on the table, that he had thrust it out of sight under his pillow. Mrs. Engle returned, and Virginia, staying another minute, said goodbye. As she went out, she glanced down at the table. In her room, she asked herself what it was that he had snatched and hidden. It seemed a strange thing to do, and the question perplexed her. While she attached no importance to it, it was there like a pebble in one shoe. 
refusing to be ignored. That night, just as she was going to sleep, she knew. Out of a half-doze, she had visualized the table with its couple of bottles, a withering rose, a scrap of notepaper, a fountain pen. The pen. It was Patton's. Had evidently leaked and had been wiped carelessly upon the sheet of paper, left lying with the paper half-wrapped around it. She had noted carelessly a few scrawled words in Patton's slovenly hand, and she knew that it had been removed while she turned her back, removed by a hand which, in its haste, had slipped the pen with it under the pillow. She went to sleep incensed with herself that she gave the matter another thought, but she kept asking herself what it was that Patton had written that Roderick Norton did not want her to read. End of chapter 13